Hello, and welcome to Energy Levelized. I'm Morgan. And I'm Bill, and we're your hosts. Energy Levelized is a glimpse behind the scenes, a chance to hear from the passionate personalities behind the mountains of research the Enverus Intelligence Team puts out on the energy space. For those that aren't familiar with Enverus, we're an energy SaaS firm that is influencing the world's most important energy decisions by connecting an industry through intelligence, data analytics, and smart network technologies. We invite you to join us as we have fun, unscripted, and honest conversations tackling the toughest questions in energy. Good morning. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Hey, Morgan. It's good, thanks. How are you doing over there in Calgary? It's pretty good. It feels good to have some energy in the city again. So we have a a pretty fun guest today. I don't know if you want to introduce him. I know you've worked quite closely with him for a number of years. Yes, we have Al Salazar, who uh, is vice president on Enverus's macro oil intelligence team. Al has over 20 years of experience in the energy sector, focus on forecasting short and long-term global oil supply and demand. Al specializes in global oil and energy demand analysis and in-depth evaluations on market conditions and impacts and risks to oil prices. He's been with the firm, uh, formerly RS Energy Group, since March 2018. And prior to that, he was with Senevis, where he was a specialist in the commodity fundamentals team. Uh, focused on hedging for Brent TI and WCS. Al graduated from the University of Calgary in 2000, not that long ago compared to me, earning a Bachelor of Arts degree in Applied Energy Economics and an MBA from Syracuse University in 2007. Apart from being an energy economist, Al hunts Pokemon with his kids, is an avid cyclist. By the way, I want to know what that even means, and enjoys traveling in his time off. Al Welcome to the Energy Levelized podcast. Uh, oil's above $70. Where are we going? Oh, uh, okay. Um, oh, my. What a Just really throwing you oh. in there. Yeah, <laughs> can I ask you the Pokemon question first? I think yeah, yeah. So, let's start there. So my kids are seven and four, both boys, and they're, they're addicted to this Pokemon Go app. And we're forced to drive all around town looking for these stops and these Pokemon where they they go and virtually catch them. And, and, you know, they say, oh, daddy, I got this one. And, oh, can you make a U-turn? It's over there. And so it's <laughs> make a U-turn. It, it, it's it's quite heated, especially if there's something that's rare. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite uh, it's quite active. But uh, <laughs> back and to your hundred questions. And it's able to burn up more gasoline as well at the same I, I'm time. Doing my, I'm doing my best to offset the uh, the peak oil demand for all those folks that are on full oil demand. So. But there is there is some cycling and there's some walking involved too. But yeah, Good. that's it. Good. Uh, for for your question, oil is above seventy. What the heck, right? Um, where are we going? Well, you know, to start it off, I just want to you know, say that hey, we got this. You know, I'm acting like as if we were surprised. But uh, when you have a, a recovery of demand like we've had over you know the past two quarters and OPEC discipline and in drawing inventory 70 was the gimme for it so I don't think that's out of the question but uh, where are we going I guess is, is probably the the harder one and I know that there's a lot of firms out there that are saying oh we could see a hundred dollar oil we could see a hundred dollar oil and, and that's come back in the conversation and, and naturally when you when you think of that it's is that plausible? And the question I see is, well, I go back to history and say, well, what caused $100 oil? And to me, the math is, is pretty clear, is that you need 
continued uh, inventory draws, strong inventory draws, which means strong demand and continued OPEC discipline. And as we've seen over the past couple of days, that's that's a tough ask. Uh, so I don't think we're going to get to $100 oil, but you know, here we are. Um, we've been we through the year from from hell in, in so many ways, but the oil market has certainly reflected the, a piece of that. I mean, when you you look at the the recovery that we're now seeing in, in, in oil demand, and it's supposed to be incredibly strong in the second half of this year, are, are there sort of different patterns of consumption emerging? I mean, did you buy into the idea that you know structural oil demand is going to be different post COVID than it was pre COVID? And if and if so, how and why? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I don't think you go into a experience a once in a generation lifetime event and not have it impact how an individual consumes a robuster daily life. I mean, to do so would be <laughs> quite remarkable. I mean, there's folks that are bullish and say, I'm going to get in my car and, and drive and everything's going to be fine. But when you look at the employment displacement, the need for people to look for different jobs, you look for people that have, haven't been able to find jobs, you look at the, the geopolitics, the politics surrounding people wanting to, to concentrate their supply chains, uh, you look at travel patterns. Those things right now are, are quite different in terms of how this demand recovery is shaping out to be. You know, I, I remember people in, in, with jet fuel saying, oh, that's going to be, we've been on calls with people saying, oh, I'm going to be flying, getting back on a plane as soon as I can. But that, that hasn't come to fruition. It's been over a year and a half, you know. Well, obviously, it's just been a year, but people have just been vaccinated. But that doesn't seem to be coming to fruition anytime soon because of constraints around the world and you know different vaccination rates and in terms of structural consumption people are learning to live with less oil consumption regard uh, microsoft teams and, and, and virtual conferences and people say i don't want to do that anymore again but uh when you when you look at the cost benefit analysis of it i think those things change so certainly i've seen that in terms of the consumption numbers change and economic activity has picked up but yet i don't think oil demand has come up as much as economic activity has and that's also a sign that things are changing so do you think i mean do you think we're in a, a new phase where gdp growth will be less oil intensive then oh without question um just when you think about where the stimulus money is going to be spent transitional technologies you know off oil movements greater carbon initiatives a dollar your old correlation is a dollar gdp is equal to x amount of oil demand naturally over time has some type of efficiency factor in it, but now with it being pressured from all parts, uh, it's just natural for it to be less influential. And you can see that now. I mean, numbers of, of GDP recovery are are quite strong, but yet oil demand is still in the 96 million barrel, 97 million barrel territory. PMIs are quite strong. You know, sentiment's quite strong, but yet there's a disconnect. You've seen the disconnect. Yeah, it almost seems like COVID was the kick in the pants that the energy transition needed. The industry was always headed in that direction, but COVID kind of supplied that systematic change. Or uh, without question, it was thinking, yeah. it was a wake up. Uh, it forced everybody to to rethink how they operate in in the midst of all this. Like even our own operations, we saw oh, we can still do things from home. We could still meet with clients, although it's online. And, and whether how sticky those are going in the future, obviously that's in the question. But but the option now is there. And on top of that, you know, this environmental movement is is increased in 
you know. I've been talking about Kyoto's, you know, greenhouse gas credits since the early 90s, but now the momentum seems to be there. Now, whether or not you get some global coordination, that's a completely different thing. I mean, you could see how the vaccine distribution has rolled out to see whether or not yeah, global coordination is, yeah. is, is, is a positive thing. But, uh, but certainly, I think you're right. It has been a kick in the pants. It has been an awakening. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up the... The, I guess the prospect of will there actually be global coordination on this? I know COP26 is coming up. What are your your thoughts on on that? Should oil producers be fearful of of net zero commitments in the upcoming COP26? I I think that's you know with the events the the Shell decision in the Hague, the Exxon stuff. Uh, those are significant moves that if you told us ten years ago. We would say that's wow. Uh, here we are today. Those are those are reasons why oil producers should be keeping an eye on what happens with with COP26. We know that there will be more commitments, without question. Whether or not that there'll be mechanisms in place, that's still you know high up. I don't. That's depending on the negotiations, and we don't have any insight info on that. But to me, if I was an oil producer, I'd be proactive in trying to get ahead of this because. No matter what happens with those, acknowledgement that the world is changing and, and having a sustainable plan going forward just seems to be good for business, not just to be appeasing for the environment, but good for business. And, and certainly I'm not the one to be talking about valuations, but it seems to be also good for how you proceed in the investment community. It seems to be a requirement. So it's not like the environmental benefit is, is obviously great, but the world and, and how it values its investment dollar seems to be requiring a sustainable element to it. Mm-hmm. Hey, Al, um, you talked about transitional technologies, and I'm just thinking if you're an oil operator and you're facing internal challenges from activist shareholders, you're you're facing potentially legal challenges from courts in the jurisdictions where you operate. What, In terms of transitional technologies, what, what do you think that they would be most scared of? Looking forward to the next five, 10 years, what, what are the things that could bring forward peak demand and, and potentially diminish demand for for liquid hydrocarbons sooner rather than later? I, I you know what, I, I spent uh, in my prior life, I spent a good part of time. The thing that really freaked out the board was electric vehicles, recycling, and and certainly uh, those are the, the top two things. So we spent a, a tremendous amount of time looking at the potential of electric vehicles. And first we were skeptical, you know, I remember maybe about a decade ago, oh, it's, it's 10 years, you know, 20 years away. And now here we are. And they're becoming more competitive, right? And when you look at the barrel, you've got roughly 20, 25 million barrels a day of global demand due to gasoline. No one's saying it's going to zero, but certainly that with all these transitional technologies, electric vehicles seem to be getting the headlines. And, and certainly they do because it's quite a significant threat in the back end that could, we were always asking, is this the next iPhone <laughs> in terms <laughs> of a pickup? And nobody paid attention to cafe standards, which I thought was was more impactful. But everyone was worried about electric vehicles becoming the next iPhone in terms of uptake. And to a lesser extent, our story with plastics and uh, pet cam was so bullish for so long. But and I know the the single use plastic isn't a big component of it, but it's still something there. But every 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 angle on the oil demand side is under attack. To be quite Frank. Uh, so you don't reckon that PetCams is a is a reasonable hedging strategy for an integrated oil company? Um, it, it is. It's the best one. It's not the perfect one, but it's the best one. Getting long transportation fuels and refining right now is probably not the, the, the producer's 
obviously produce everything, but uh, certainly depending on where you are, that's also, also a tough thing. Being an integrated producer in North America, where it seems as if though demand has peaked already, like I could say U.S. demand has already peaked already, and in terms of Europe, where the or the, the environmental regulations are are really stringent and the cafe regulations are quite aggressive too. I wouldn't want to be owning a refinery in, in those two areas. And you can see that I'm sure there's stresses on the refining complex and and it's probably a good reason why a lot of the refineries have come up in China as well. So, because they're not subject to those pressures, but. Yeah. Are, are there any technologies that you think are overhyped in terms of the overhyped? energy transition? Like maybe people are banking on them a little bit too heavily too soon? Well, it's the one thing about the electric vehicle that I find fascinating is is I see very bullish forecasts for them. Like this requirement that you know 50% of vehicles are supposed to be that are sold are supposed to be this by 20 whatever, right? Uh, I think that comes under without any consideration of the raw materials available. There is no doubting the technology of electric vehicles is superior to the ice whatsoever. And, and we did a recent piece on Synfuels, and Synfuels doesn't come close to what electric vehicle does, right? But it's, it's not an all or nothing solution. Like a, one technology can't solve the entire problems of carbon. It has to be a, in my view, I think it has to be a, a combination of a little bit of Synfuels, a little bit of fuel economy, and some electric vehicles. But when I see some of the forecasts, it seems like it's all or nothing electric vehicles, and I just don't know how that happens especially with cold weather problems, uh, raw material constraints, electric vehicle infrastructure issues. Uh, those are things that may give an opening to other technologies which are not getting as much attention as they should be. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should be expecting a sort of Apache approach to transition across the world? I mean, we would expect to see different speeds of adoption of new technologies, different readiness to to finance some of the carbon capture technologies that are available now or that will become available what what do you expect to see for we talked a lot about the us and, and europe what, what are your feelings about how asia is going to cope with the transition oh. you know that's that's why the the cop 26 meetings and all that is so important because in order for the emerging markets to participate they need funding right uh, to adopt these transition technologies because right off the bat, economics are, are, are quite challenged with that, right? Uh, so, for example, if I'm, in, if I'm in the Philippines, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, or something like that, and I'm forcing down a Philippine key to drive an electric vehicle, I don't know, that's first you've got grid problems, then you have distribution problems, right? Who's going to pay for that? Right? How are you going to manage that? That's, those are things that the income disparity between countries, you know, there has to be some equalization there. And that's why these are, these meetings are so important. Everyone's going to go at a different speed. Definitely, there's going to be more environmental pressures in the developer versus developing. And I think that's what makes the negotiation so dynamic and so fascinating and so difficult. Awesome. So I think we're coming up on time. Maybe we'll end with, I don't know, I'm going to try to poke the bear a little bit here, Al. Um, <laughs> for those, Go ahead. For those who, who don't know Al or haven't seen him present, internally, we we kind of refer to you as a smiling Buddha. So I can <laughs> picture you just like with a huge grin on your face now ready to, yeah. for this question. Yeah. So we scan Twitter a lot. We kind of see a, um, a lot of headlines in the news and there's a lot of shops calling for $100 oil. I'm just curious if you could tweet back, what would you say? Well, I, I couldn't put my response in yeah. four four hundred characters. It would just be 
<laughs> well, I, I could. I said, no bloody way. I, <laughs> uh, well, I shouldn't. You know, uh, let me take, let me walk that back. You sound uh, like Bill now. No bloody way. I, uh, no bloody way. Uh, well, I, this is the influence of working with Bill every day. You know, it's, it's great. <laughs> uh, I need to to walk it back because certainly when it comes to oil prices, anything can happen. I I know when when people come across and they ask, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, let me forecast oil price. Well, already you've lost a lot of credibility when you say that, right? Because the perception out there is nobody can do that. And certainly I'm of the camp that no one can predict oil prices, but certainly you can give a direction where it may be, and you could give a price to say how biased you are relative to the forward strip to where it may be, right? But when I see people saying that, oh, $100 oil is, is imminent, to me, I, I, I look at that from two perspectives. One is, are they saying that just to get attention, right? Because everybody loves a bull market. And what are the caveats uh, associated with that, right? We had a Saudi, not too long ago, we had the Saudi facilities attacked. We never reached 100. Obviously, the dynamics are different now between back then. Inventories are much lower. But when you look at what it takes to get $100 oil again, takes tremendous amount of outperformance on oil demand, which people are quite bullish on. And to me, I have my reservations. To me, in my history of doing demand forecasts, everyone seems to have a hockey stick where it all constantly goes up, up, up. And for the most part, you count on a million barrels a day, but over the past, or a million barrels a day of growth year on year, but for the past couple of years, that's it's a bit different this time around. And with the OPEC, uh, you can see when you have a frothy oil price, cracks begin to show in the armor. Uh, not only in OPEC, but who knows, maybe the U.S. as well. So when I look at those things about $100 oil, uh, nobody remembers, well, I should say that, uh, you can make the call for $200 oil or $150 oil, and then six months later, you know, it may not come to fruition and you can make another call. I mean, it's like a clock, you know, it's just, you're right, but are you right for the right reasons? And, and sometimes I doubt that. But anyways... Right, sure so that, that that's the plight, the polite way of tweeting back that that's a hundred dollar oil is closer to BS than reality. Yes, I mean with the spare <laughs> capacity you've got, I mean you've got inflation concerns. Think about the prices of all commodities at this point in time. It would hurt. It would hurt a lot. It wouldn't be constructive, and I'm sure there'd be a lot of pressures to keep it from getting to that point. Awesome. Well, I think we're we're out of time, uh, but thanks very much. Al, for having the conversation. Bill, happy yeah, to have you join me. Yeah, it's been great to be I, here. I, I apologize for you having to cover me. As ever. Thanks, <laughs> Al. That's, that's amazing. Really good. Awesome. Talk soon. Inveris Intelligence Research Incorporated provides leading energy industry research and is a subsidiary of Inveris, the largest SaaS company in the world solely dedicated to the energy market. Therefore, any company mentioned in this podcast may be a subscriber or client of Inveris Intelligence Research, Inveris, or their affiliates. However, any views expressed in this podcast accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about any subject securities referenced. The information contained in this recording is provided for information purposes only and is not to be used or considered as investment advice or recommendation or offer to buy, hold, or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Please visit www.inveris.com disclosures for additional information.